The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and great to have my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, let's start with you. Thanks, John. Uh, this week, I wanted to take a few minutes to just uh, say a few things in remembrance of Lou Simpson, who, unfortunately, for anyone who hasn't seen the news yet, passed away this past Saturday, which was uh, January 8th of uh, 2022. Um, so I, I'm just going to say a few things, and then John and Ellie, you guys feel free to, to chime in with, with anything that, that stands out to you. This isn't kind of the usual topic. I apologize for that. But um, I got to know Lou. I was very lucky. He joined the faculty at Kellogg about two years before I did. And as part of his uh, his time there, he would come every couple of well, about twice a year and and just block off a series of days where he would just sit down with anyone who was interested. And uh, if anyone wants to find it, there's a great interview online. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes with one of the other faculty members there who was responsible for the whole thing. And I'll never forget the first time uh, he was like, hey, you know, are you, are you around next week? I'm like, yeah, why? He's like, well, would you like to have, come have lunch with Lou Simpson? And I was like, yeah, no, I would. That'd be, that sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll, I'll clear my schedule for that. And so that, that kind of started this, this whole thing. And I, I just can't tell you how much I learned over the years from being able to, to sit down for an hour or two with somebody like that, who's had a career like that. Um, so it, it I, I looked all this up to make sure that, that I had it right. But um, it, his background is really quite fascinating. He, he was born in 1936. He graduated from Ohio Wesleyan in 1958. Then he got a master's from Princeton in 1960 and actually stuck around teaching there for a couple of years afterward, which uh, in, in one of the articles of remembrance, his wife said he was actually a teacher at heart. And it's kind of funny how that's a recurring vein for a lot of people. Um, but after that, he, he went out into the world and became an investor uh, pretty much right away. He was a, a partner at a firm here in Chicago before he moved uh, to a couple of different firms in California, where he ended up as the president and CEO of Western Asset Management. Uh, before Geico came calling. And the story goes that uh, a few different people had been put up uh, by Jack Byrne and uh, sent to Omaha to meet Warren Buffett. And, and Lou was the fourth of four. And after talking for four or five hours straight, uh, Buffett picked up the phone and told Jack Byrne, I've, I've, I've found the guy, you can stop the search. So um, he joined Geico in 1979 and was officially the CEO of the capital operations and the, the portfolio manager standalone from 1990 on or <clears throat> 1990 onward. Um, and his track record, um, in case you 
you haven't seen it, it's just unbelievable. He beat the S&P 500 by seven points for more than 20 years. Uh, it's just, just astounding. And if you look at um, the way he invested, I think is, is probably as much inspirational to me as anything else. I mean, it was generally 10 or 12 positions at a time when he, you know, toward the end of his Geico tenure, uh, when he was managing several billion dollars, he had only seven stocks in the portfolio. Um, it, it, at a couple of various points in the 1980s, after the, the breakup of AT&T, he put 40% of Geico's capital into three of the baby bells as they were being spun off of the parent. So uh, the concentration is, is something that really does stand out. I'll go through some of his other principles later, but the attributes personally that I really remire, admired was that he was just extremely genuine. There was just absolutely no pretense whatsoever. I, I'm sure he ruffled some feathers and pissed some people off over the years, but he was just of that personality type and and of that generation where he couldn't have cared less. I mean, you, you just can't imagine a guy like this on social media pandering to the crowds. I mean, he actually only did a couple of on-the-record interviews uh, when he was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune in 2010, when he retired from Geico, uh, he said that it was the only only the second interview he'd given in the last 20 years. Uh, he gave a few more in the last decade or so, but there were they were few and far between. But then, if you talk to the people who got to know him, they were just effusive. Uh, we'll link to this as well, but you know, I'm sure we've all read. Unfortunately, a lot in the past few years, uh, you know, obituaries and articles of remembrance for for prominent people who have passed away. And, and one that stood out to me as I was reading through some things over the last couple of days was actually put out by the university, uh, where another thing that I really admired was his attitude toward philanthropy. You know, he was not clinging to every last dollar. He didn't leave a didn't lead a fancy, ostentatious lifestyle. He gave more than two hundred and fifty million dollars to Northwestern. He gave hundreds of millions of dollars to other causes. Um, he really devoted himself in the last five or 10 years to giving all of his money away in a really thoughtful way. And if you read some of the thoughts from the people that he worked with directly, I mean, you're always going to get nice comments out of the president of the university because you know he was such a big donor. But then you go down to the individual professors in the areas of interest. I mean, these were some pretty intensive discussions and relationships that he was having with, with scientists out in the field in nanotechnology and bioelectronics and biomedical research. Um, you know, he, he endowed a building that um, is the largest single standalone facility for biomedical research at any American medical school. Um, and it, it's just, I mean, you, you read these comments and people talk on and on about having his friendship, having him in their life, uh, how humble he was, how much he wanted to dig in and really help. I mean, these were not the type of comments you'd read for just some random rich person who died having given away a lot of money. It, 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 really, it really does stand out. In that regard, I mean, I think what, what I took away from his comments to me about philanthropy and, and what he was trying to do in the end of his life is he said, you know, that, that's part of why I wanted to step away when I did from Geico was because I want to be either all in or all out on something. You know, he he didn't believe in standing around. He didn't believe in in running the clock just for its own sake. He wasn't going to commit to something if he couldn't go into it full bore and give it his best. And and he took that attitude to absolutely everything that he believed. So um, more on topic for for us, um, his investment principles, things that I've taken away, things that 
you can read about and, and apply and, and continue to practice in your own life. I think the, the best the best single sentence, the best line that I've I've read or heard um, was in an interview about four or five years ago. And the, the interviewer just said, you know, how would you describe your investment philosophy? You know, pretty generic softball question, right? And his answer really at home, he said, the essence of my philosophy is simplicity. So he then went on to explain that, look, you know, the base case here is you can do something else with your money. So what am I going to do that's going to outperform that? And if it's not simple, chances are it's not going to outperform. And I thought that that really resonated with me. He, he went on to say that you have to think independently. We try to be skeptical of conventional wisdom and avoid all sorts of irrational behavior and emotion that periodically engulf Wall Street, which often leads to all sorts of crazy prices and eventually a permanent loss of capital. Unfortunately, um, my last uh, one of those twice a year sit downs uh, was was canceled in October um, due to his health situation. So I, I didn't get a chance to to get one last thought from what he would have made of this environment in the past, you know, six months or the past year, which has just been so bonkers. It's it's hard to imagine though that that he wouldn't just be shaking his head. A couple of the other investment principles, invest in high return businesses that are run for shareholders and pay only a reasonable price, even for an excellent business. He, of course, invests only for the long term. He um, does all of his own research. You know, he, he tries to do things, you know, on the ground from a first person perspective. He doesn't take anybody else's word for it. He, he generally had a small team. I mean, I've actually gotten to know a couple of the people that work directly for him. And, uh, you know, you got the impression that, uh no matter where he was in life, what station in life he was in, uh, he was a tough but fair boss, you know, always a reasonable person. Uh, you just got the impression that everybody he met really respected uh, him and what, what he was doing, which is not hard to believe when, when you get to spend any amount of time with him. The other, the other thing I thought that was worth sharing was that he didn't just stop as a shareholder, uh, you know, by, by making an investment and that's it. He actually engaged pretty actively um, in a lot of ways. You know, people are always asking, okay, what are the differences between him and Buffett? And, and he would kind of shrug and say, you know, he would kind of punt the question for obvious reasons, right? I mean, he'd say that Buffett had a much harder job. Buffett had been doing it a lot longer, et cetera, et cetera. That's all true. And, and obviously the overlap and the, the comparisons are obvious because their investment style is so similar. And obviously for a long time, uh, if anyone was aware, I mean, he he would have been the successor had anything unfortunate and premature happened to Buffett and Munger. I mean, he would have been the one to step in for good reason. But I think the most obvious answer is that uh, Lou Simpson was always willing to roll up his sleeves and, and engage with the company. Um, see, he was lead director for VeriSign, uh, not a company you would generally, I mean, uh, people that are aware of it know what a dominant company it really is um, in a technology company at that. But he was a lead director there since 2006 and really turned it into one of the great capital allocation stories and, and one of the best managed, one of the best cases of corporate governance I've ever seen. Um, and he was actually still on that board at the time of his passing. But he's been on the board of dozens of companies over the years and has really been uh, a much more forceful advocate for the right kind of corporate governance, and including most famously at Chesapeake. There's a couple of stories there that I won't share, but you can only imagine what it was like to have him and Aubrey McClendon in the same boardroom. Uh, sparks would fly, to say the least. But a list of a partial list of some of the other companies uh, where he served on the board include AT&T, Comcast, 
Geico, HNC Software, Magma Power, Media One, Potomac Electric Power, National Bank of Washington, ResMeds, ResMed, SAIC, the Science Applications International Corp, Solomon. I had actually forgotten that he was on the board of Solomon at various points. I meant to look that up and learn more about it and see what his involvement was there, if it was uh, simultaneous to Buffett and Munger's joining the board or how that worked. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and actually, he was still on the board of a couple of private companies. Uh, just recently, a little over a year ago, he, he joined the board of a uh, pretty interesting nanotechnology 3D printing company here in Chicago, where, where he knew some of the people involved. And he thought it was interesting. And after a lot of false starts, was about ready to finally uh, take off as a, as a technology. So, I mean, he was never satisfied to sit around. I mean, that was one of the things he said when he retired from Geico was that, you know, he was retired for about one day and then wanted to go on and, and do something else and and put his stamp on the world through SQ advisors a little bit differently. So anyway, I'll stop there. I, I apologize for kind of the rambling tribute here, but um, I just thought it was important to, to say a few things. He had a, a big impact on me in terms of my thoughts on investing and corporate governance. And uh, I was just always extremely impressed with his willingness to, to sit down, to listen, to offer thoughts, to, to play that kind of mentor role, to, to be an absolute standout philanthropist in many ways. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always curious when somebody achieves that level of, of success, what are they going to end up doing with it? And how are they going to try to devote their time and resources? And I think it was a, a pretty good example in that regard. So uh, John Elliott, I'll turn it over to you. Well, Phil, there's not really much I could add to that in the sense that, you know, he really touched your life and I could get a sense for how great a person he is from what you're saying. And um, that's been echoed by, I know someone who worked for him said, you know, the same general message, like what a generous, kind person who I, I understand to have had just like, you know, dozens of mentees around uh, the industry who really look up to him and, you know, beyond just merely having learned about investing, but learned about life. And I think that's, you know, an incredible legacy. And, you know, while, while I can't really add much on a personal level, I, I do think I could maybe add a couple things to help other people get a sense of who Lou Simpson was and how he invested. Because my introduction to Lou Simpson came through a blog called The Brooklyn Investor. And I think it's a really good blog, somewhat inactive now. And I was invested in Schwab in like the mid 2010s and uh, you know the Charles Schwab Corporation. Um, and The Brooklyn Investor wrote up uh, a piece on Charles Schwab that talked a lot about Lou Simpson. And uh, there was also a piece on Brookfield where he talked about Lou Simpson. And I had never heard of Lou Simpson, to be honest, before reading this. Uh, post. And, you know, I think it was really interesting. And I think this gives people a good sense of what he looked for and how he invested, as far as I could tell. I mean, I very well might be wrong on that, but um, I'd recommend reading that. We'll include a link in the show notes. Um, and, you know, the setup was basically like you have this core earnings power and you have this hidden optionality, depending on which way, you know, with interest rates only having one way to go, really, and thinking about like normalization and what that would look like for the bottom line of the company. It was like quite prescient and it was a very concentrated bet uh, for, for Mr. Simpson. Now, one of the other things that I had learned reading some of these pieces um, 
you know, Phil, you referenced concentration and like, you know, high single digit, low double digit positions. From what I understand earlier in his career, he started with mid twenties positions and gradually narrowed his universe and evolved. Um, you know, from my seat, I think that speaks a lot to how you earn the right for simplicity with experience. And you start being able to um, think of the world in a much different, more focused way, as you've seen more of it. <laughs> so, you know, kind of sampling wide, but uh, understanding how to narrow down. And to me, that's been something that's an ongoing process. And I think it's interesting to read that and hear um, so those are a couple thoughts and really, I, I would just emphasize how, you know, I've heard of, from a personal level on several people, just how great a man he was. Um, and, you know, I think that means a lot. Yeah, I would say just to add to that, by the way, that is a great blog. Um, and I, I remember that post now that you mentioned it. And I remember talking about Schwab with him and his comments about the company, I thought were really interesting because, you know, this is the type of guy who met. Chuck, right? Like could could call Chuck and get him on the phone at a moment's notice. But he said, what I really care about was we have, when he set up SQ in 2011 into 2012, uh, rather than set up a commingled hedge fund style vehicle, it was all managed accounts. And I think when he eventually closed it down in 2017 or 18, I think it was, Uh, It was several billion dollars. I mean, it was three or four billion dollars. And he had managed accounts from some of the world's major universities and some of the world's most well-known people. And so, I mean, he had dozens, if not a couple hundred managed accounts, and they were all custody to Schwab. So he ran his entire business, his entire back office through Schwab. And I was actually looking at the company at the time. And I, we, we just started, you know, chatting about it and its its various attributes. And he said, I, I couldn't care less about Chuck Schwab or, the, you know, who the CEO is now or what's going on. He's like, I want to talk to the people that are actually doing the work. So he would actually get on the phone and do some of the like back office legwork just so he could have the first person interaction with the customer experience and see how Schwab was actually performing. Because he said, look, I, you know. I don't need this kind of nonsense. Like I could go hire a CFO and have a bunch of fancy stuff. His wife was actually prominently, Kimberly was actually a huge influence on his life and a huge influence on his career and a huge influence on his philanthropy. And she was actually, she's the Q in SQ and she was um, actually pretty prominently involved in, in running the business. I mean, this was not like a big operation. It was a, you know a couple of people, even though it was several billion dollars. And uh, he would just, that, that was the type of research that he did that, you know, I think a lot of people would have outsourced or taken somebody else's word for it. And uh, he was exactly right about Schwab. He made a lot of money holding it. He would have made even more uh, through today. So it's it's interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for the perspective, Phil and, and Elliot as well. I don't have anything to add really to what you guys have said. Uh, I Remember following uh, Lou Simpson for um, for a long time. Uh, his his investing primarily what attracted me was the concentration, even with that kind of significant uh, amount of assets under management, that someone would uh, follow that kind of concentrated approach. So I always kept an eye on uh, what he was doing in the market. Phil, if I may, just one question for you. Um, you know, when I kind of sure. the little I know about uh, Lou Simpson, I would have kind of guessed that he would have been a Berkshire lifer. Um, do you have color on on his retirement from Geico? Was that just an age kind of a mandatory 
retirement thing or um how did that it definitely wasn't it definitely wasn't that so i don't want to overstep my bounds and speculate on anything i mean there there has been kind of speculation behind the scenes that there was a some sort of rift um between him and buffett i think that's unlikely from what i know but i certainly don't have any firsthand knowledge of it i mean what we know for sure is that he was there 30 years and was extremely effective in that role obviously i mean just did wonders for for geico and for berkshire and when he left in 2010 what we know is that is what buffett said publicly and i think for those of us <clears throat> including all three of us i'm sure and most of the people listening who have, who have studied buffett's career over the years um you know that what he says is what he means i mean he's he's certainly very good at crafting a public persona but he's also not one of these spin doctors that's saying one thing and doing another. And so when when Luke retired in 2010 from Geico, he was 74 and Buffett gave an on the record interview where he said, um, I was very surprised when he called me last month and said he wanted to retire. And he, he told me, you know, at 74, I'd just as soon turn it over to somebody else. Um, and that he and Buffett went on to say that I would have I would have been glad to keep him until he was 100. Um, you know, I, he, he added that, um, and I, I, these are pretty much exact quotes, but we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. And he, he added that, um, you know, he was happy for Lou personally, but that it was a very sad day for Berkshire Hathaway. And so I take that to mean that, you know, look, the most likely scenario here was that Lou'd been there 30 years. He probably wanted a little more flexibility and freedom in his life to commit to the philanthropic side that he was about to undertake. I mean, Again, I don't think he's. He, I don't think he was capable of being the type of person to give away a quarter billion dollars, or it, I'm sure it was actually quite a bit more than that if we were able to actually tally up all the the numbers. But to give away that kind of money without devoting hundreds and hundreds of hours a year to doing it, and I don't think he could have done that while he was still at Geico necessarily. I think there also could have been potentially some foresight on his end. I mean, if, if the quote that he gave to Buffett is accurate, that at 74, I just as soon turn it over to somebody else. I mean, what that directly led to was hiring Todd Combs and Ted Weschler. And so he may have actually had some sort of eye to the fact that it was time to do a little bit more secession planning because he was only six years younger than Buffett. And uh, he'd obviously been wearing the mantle of the the day two successor if, if something unfortunate and premature it happened to Buffett and Munger himself on the investment side. So he, he very well may have been, you know, planning in that regard. I don't, I don't know that that is somewhat speculative on my side. I mean, what is clear is that um, Lou's admiration for Buffett and what he built at Berkshire didn't diminish at all over the years. And indeed at, at SQ, he was still a major Berkshire shareholder. He still had a huge position in Berkshire um, and still spoke about, all the lessons that he'd learned from Buffett over the years. So I, you know, beyond that, I can't, it, it's a great question. Um, I think it's just kind of one of those things that, you know, only the handful of people who are involved will ever know the full story, but I don't think there's a, there was a whole lot of palace intrigue beyond that. That's very helpful. Thank you for that perspective, Phil. Yeah. And the other thing I'd add too, Elliot, you made a great point about the simplicity because that is the one thing that really, stands out to me is, you know, there's this notion that simplicity is kind of the ultimate form of elegance. And I agree. And it is something you you have to earn, right? And so I think, you know, as I reflect on my career to date and all the things that I've learned, I mean, it's something that 
I totally appreciate now that I, that this would have gone completely over my head 10 years ago, let's say that, that simplicity is, is the essence. And, um, I don't know how else to articulate it. It's just something worth thinking about that if you're doing something that is inherently difficult and complex and full of uncertainties, but you can get it down to simplicity, you're probably doing something right. And I think that's a part of why he was so successful over the years and able to compound to 20% a year for several decades um, was that he was really able to distill things into simplicity. And, you know, there's that famous quote about, you know, the, the real geniuses out there can take something complex and distill it uh, down into something more simple. And I think that's exactly right here. So anyway. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Elliot, over to you for your topic of the week. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. That was really touching and interesting. And I learned a lot hearing from your like more personal perspective, Um, you know, hard to follow up on in some ways. Um, What I wanted to talk about today you know, there's something about the calendar turning that gets you to be a little more reflective and zoom out. Uh, maybe it's, you know, the pace of things slows down around the holidays or what, but, you know, I've really been reflecting on the Buffett quote, uh, Charlie and I would much rather earn a lumpy 15% over time than a smooth 12%. And it's very much come into my mind, I guess, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, last year, one of my uh, worst stocks and one of my worst experiences from highs to lows was, you know, holding on to my shares in PayPal. And I was just looking at my history with the stock. I basically got it out of the split from eBay. So it's been since 2015, you know, in my seventh year with the company in my portfolio. Um, And I think it was really interesting to reflect on the fact that from basically the split to the middle of 2017, it had done nothing, you know, depending on exactly where you measured from, it had been up a little, it had been down a little bit, but it literally did nothing. And then from like mid 2017 through uh, 2018, it made a powerful move. And then it did nothing again for upwards of two years until the summer following COVID. So I've owned this stock for seven years. It's been a good outcome at some points, better than others. I'd say it's a really good outcome overall. Actually, I can't call it an outcome because the book's, the story is not over yet. Um, but you know, over seven years, it's basically spent two and a half years moving and the rest of the time doing absolutely nothing. So you know, it, it got me thinking about how like stocks in general, and markets in general are just really lumpy. Um, and you know, I was zooming out and thinking about like one of the other stocks I've held for a really long time uh, since inception of our business was uh, Google, and it did nothing for like you know, basically I'd say half the time. Um, and then you zoom out and you think about the market. There are a lot of people who say stuff like the market's been nothing but straight up since. Uh, the financial crisis ended. And oh my God, do I take issue with that quote? Um, Because really after the first wave up from 2019 into like through 2010, did nothing till, you know, 2013. And there was a good run from 2013 through the middle of 2015. And then it did nothing till like the middle of 2017. And then from 2018 through um, early, uh, through the COVID crash, the market had really done nothing. That's like, you know, two and a half years. 
basically, if if you were to reflect on like the middle of 20, uh, the, the kind of first wave of the bounce off the COVID crash, you know, for over three years, the market had gone nowhere. And here we are with, you know, now two years of powerful up. Um, it's just striking to think about how um, everything that happens happens in very small periods of times. And, you know, it's interesting after I had tweeted about that, John, uh, after I had introduced the topic to both John and Phil, um, John last night, uh, I, it must have been pretty late in the night for you, John, but, um, you know, I think you had a tweet something like, um, Positive inflection point plus investor fatigue due to long sideways or underperformance is a great setup, except if it's your own fatigue. Then you're susceptible to selling just as the upswing gets going because you've seen so many head fakes and may doubt the up move. And oh my God, that got me reflecting on, and this was after the topic, so I didn't plan on talking about this specific story, but I'm pretty sure I mentioned it here before. I owned NVIDIA for like three years uh, at a price of 11 and that's split adjusted. So I think that's closer to like what would be a three right now. Uh, but let's anchor to the number 11. The stock went from 11 to 18, three separate times while I was holding it in a fairly short period of time. And I was like, oh boy, you know, the third time it got up to 18, I better lock in my 50% plus and get on out of here and move on because this thing's just driving me absolutely nuts. And sure enough, the next time it goes to 18, it does nothing but go straight up since then. Um, and you know, I literally had what John referenced in this tweet, intense investor fatigue. I viewed every up move as a head fake and I you know, kind of doubted myself. I was susceptible to selling just as the upswing gets going. You know, and I think that's a big part of what, like there are certain kinds of investors who try to have a shorter holding period and get catalysts right. And there are other kinds of investors. And, you know, we've talked about these topics before who really want to like buy things, treat them as businesses in uh, like a private equity sense where you own the thing without thinking about selling. And you have it for, you know, years at a time. And basically there are these portions of time where, you know, the expectations keep going higher. And part of what it takes is heading into those times, the expectations having gone lower. And there are these various oscillations along the way. And, you know, it gets to be psychologically challenging. And I think that's what people mean when there's like a washout at something or, you know, when you, after these long periods of sideways, you kind of have this uh, apathy and exhaustion with it all. And then, you know, it could go on its merry way again. But it was just really striking to me reflecting on these things about how like little of these long stretches of time actually matter for where something goes over the course of your holding period. Um, so yeah, those those are some of my, the big things I'm thinking about uh, as we head to New Year's. I'm curious how you guys think about that, how you deal with like the psychological battles of, um, you know, have, having such uh, concentrated periods where, you know, uh, I, I forgot the exact quote. It's like there, there are like decades where nothing happens, and uh, you know, days where decades happen. Uh, you know, that just comes to mind. So, I wanted to throw the topic out to you guys and see what you got to add. Yeah, it's funny. I, um, I was just writing my annual letter, and our biggest holding, which is something we've held for about six years, it's been the biggest holding pretty much that whole time. Is a great example of this. So similar to your time period or time holding with, with PayPal there, um, you know, it, it was something where 
we made a large commitment to it in late 2015 and early 2016. It really didn't do anything for the first two and a half, three years, like just kind of dead sideways, very frustrating. Uh, then it went up a bunch uh, in 2018 and 2019. And then it went straight back down for no good reason in the pandemic, in my opinion. It was down about 20% in 2020. And then last year was up 57%. So as I look back over the six years plus now having owned it, it's actually compounded at 24% a year for those six years. It's more than tripled. It's almost quadrupled at this point. So that's a great return. I would sign up for that all day long. But to your point about the famous quote, owning a lumpy 15 rather than a smooth 12, there were a lot smoother ways to earn that return, I can guarantee you. And it was it was like you said, it was like three distinct phases. It was a ton of sitting around and having nothing happen and feel like you were just spinning your wheels and, and things weren't going anywhere, even though that was categorically not true in the underlying business, which is the key part we'll come back to. There was a you know, a very frustrating drawdown in 2020, which again was all in the stock price, not so much in the business itself, just a reflection of a pandemic and the, the marketplace. And then there were seemingly very short periods, and they were short periods. I mean, again, if you had attributed all of the shareholder gains to the number of days, I bet all of that 24% is attributable to less than 10% of the, the trading days over the last six years. So to your point, Elliot, I mean, the only way to have actually realized this return was to sit tight that whole time. I mean, it, it, it would have been impossible to pinpoint that 10% of all the days that you could have owned the stock over that last six years, it's just not doable. And on the flip side, flip side of the coin, just so it's clear, this is not some victory lap or, or humble brag. I'm not going to name either one of these, but um, on the other side of the coin, we had an investment from roughly the same period, a little bit later in 2016, um, where I made a, a pretty big, slightly smaller commitment, but it was a top three, top four kind of holding. And it was, super volatile the whole time. Like it would go up and it would go down. Partly that was a somewhat levered balance sheet back then. But in that case, I took a little bit more active approach and look, I'll, I'll stand behind some of the decisions I made. The odds were changing the balance sheet, you know, some of the management changes that were going on were, it was a different situation, but long story short, I, I sold a bunch of our shares when about two years ago, when last year the stock more than doubled. And had I held on to those original shares, my basis would have been $10 a share. The stock's now at 80. And instead, I kind of cut that in half, right? I sold a bunch of shares at 40 and actually thankfully repurchased some of them just slightly higher. But my point is, it's just really hard to get those right. It's almost impossible to get those decisions right. So yes, you have to manage things and, and there's a portfolio to consider, but I just know that I'm not capable of getting these types of decisions right. So if I find a great business like PayPal, I, I would consider PayPal a pretty good business or, or something else. You, you just have to take that as it comes. I mean, I think this is just absolutely a cost of earning those types of returns. One last example. It's funny. We were talking about Schwab earlier with Lou Simpson. Um, you know, the, like an idiot, I sold that. And look at what that's done in the last year or two. Um, you know, I knew enough back then to own it. And for reasons that don't stand up to 
to hindsight here, um, you know, I thought I had something better than what Schwab was at the time. And I wasn't a huge fan of the TD Ameritrade merger and some of the stuff that was going on. And I sold it like a total idiot. I mean, I would have made a lot more money sitting tight, even though I thought it was, I, part of the thinking was that the company was going to kind of be stuck in the mud for the next two or three years, um, integrating the TD Ameritrade merger. And I was just dead wrong. So it, it's a great point, Elliot. It's a really powerful concept. And it's just something I think if you're like me, you just have to learn it the hard way. Yeah, Elliot, thank you for referencing my tweet. Uh, I have to say that tweet comes from lots of personal experience uh, selling stocks just as their upswing gets going. And uh, basically due to my own fatigue with a company that hasn't done much in a while. Um, and I kind of um, modeled the the wording of that tweet a little bit after the uh, the saying, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets, and hopefully it's not your own blood. It's a little bit like that here. It's uh, you know, buy when there's a lot of investor fatigue, and hopefully it's not your own fatigue, because then <laughs> you're kind of screwed. Uh, it takes really a, a detached uh, mind to be able to overcome that and, and think rationally. Um, we're trying to do that, but obviously not so easy. Uh, one, one aspect that I'm curious, maybe we can explore a little bit, is um, kind of this idea of the, um, um, you know, the lumpy 15%, not just at the security level, but also at the portfolio level. So I think, um, you know, there are a lot of portfolios out there. There are kind of closet indexers that have a hundred securities in the portfolio. And I think that would basically, um, that fits the smoother 12% rather than the uh, lumpier 15. So I've always liked more concentrated portfolios where they are going to be more volatile. Uh, the years can be, you know, pretty hard to predict how you're going to do in any given quarter, any given year. But over time, hopefully, um, you do make uh, a bigger return, uh, a bigger delta versus the index. Now, I will say that you know you can go too far in that direction in my mind. And so you just got to make sure that the lumpy 15% is a geometric average and not an arithmetic average. Because if you do have some really sizable drawdowns, uh, it's going to be tough to uh, to undo those. And uh, just wondering what your guys' perspective uh, would be on, on the portfolio level uh, lumpiness. Yeah, that's a huge point. Have to think geometrically. If you think any other way, you know, that's, <laughs> that's going to challenge your uh, entire uh, premise, basically. And, you know, I think that's a big reason why you need some degree of diversification too, and not just diversification in numbers of positions in the portfolio, but what you're exposed to, because there will be uh, times where some things work and times where others don't. And that gives you some balance. I think that's part of why the S&P in aggregate gets to be so smooth because it's, you know, definitely going to have big portions that work and don't work at points in time. And we're experiencing that in a big way over the last, I'd say, since, since July, um, so, you know, I, th I think that's a huge point. Um, it, I think it's one that like, you know, I think in the value school in general, there's not a lot of conversation about portfolio construction. Um, and it's an area I think a lot about, but I, you know, still think there's a lot of room, uh, not still think, I always think there's, there's a lot of room to improve. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I would say definitely think about how your positions might interact with one another too, because you might find yourself in a time where like two things become one trade and their lumps, the wrong side of their lumps happens at the same time together. And that creates a more challenging position in aggregate. And then you're tasked with making things back. And, you know, one of the quotes I like is, uh, you don't have to make it back the same way you lost it. So if you are wrong on those kinds of things, you know, it's, it's not that you need those specific things to get back, but, you know, John, I wanted to add one thing on your, uh, fatigue, you know, one of my friends calls those situations, like the sacrifices we all have to make to the market gods for things to work. Um, and I just always thought that that resonated with me nicely. Like sometimes you have to, you have to make those, uh, those sacrifices at the altar of the market and then, uh, then it could all get back to better. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll curious what Phil has to say about the portfolio stuff too. Yeah. It's something I really struggle with. I don't think I'm as good at it as I'd like to be for sure. I, I, don't struggle to come up with defensive positioning for the portfolio, right? I'm never going to go within a country mile of levering the portfolio, using a lot of options, you know, taking some acknowledged either, well, either explicit or implicit risks to provide juice in the portfolio is, is not something I'm generally willing to do. The problem with that becomes, you know, there are times when you want to really play offense. So, I generally do that more through sizing. Uh, but to your point, Elliot, I mean, it's something that you really have to be careful with because you want to make sure, uh, you know, when the when it all hits the fan, you know, correlations tend to go toward one. Or if, if something idiosyncratic happens and there's interconnections that you haven't foreseen, it can really be be messy. And so, you know, as I as I try to ensure survival and, and do no harm as a first principle there, it's it's hard because you you know, the, the best portfolio managers aren't necessarily the best analysts and vice versa. So it's really hard to marry those two things up. But one other thing I wanted to add, which I think is really important here is, is how all of what we're talking about here is really psychological, right? I mean, this is why it's so important and why it's so powerful. I mean, we're not talking about how the business is doing. We're just talking about whether the time horizon we'd like to have happened actually happened. <laughs> so, you know, with the position I mentioned earlier, the business was actually making really good progress, pretty steady progress, to be honest, like a very, a very, not a straight line, but like there was good progress in each and every year, pretty much of the past six years. And I just wrote about it in our annual letter that the, the company has produced far less drama than the stock price would imply. And, and to John's point about fatigue and, you know, you're the one who's getting fatigued. I mean, that's really a powerful thing and can create a ton of opportunity. And another kind of related concept is, and I think this might've been what Buffett was getting at with this quote, was there's just so many people that will look at an opportunity and evaluate it rationally and quantitatively and qualitatively, but then the last stumbling block is that they're just not willing to take the lumpiness of the return. They'll say, yeah, that could work, but I'm not willing to own it going into year end or going into earnings season or going into bonus season or whatever the case may be, because they think they can either predict some of that or they can't handle the potential downside and the potential volatility, even though it's totally irrelevant to what's going to happen over a long period, longer period of time. So those are amazing sources of opportunity if you can find them. And whenever it turns out to me that like 
what's really baked into the consensus and the expectations is like, oh, yeah, this is a great company, great management team, really bright, you know, kind of five-year time horizon outlook here for this thing. But, you know, boy, next quarter could be really ugly or I can't own this going into year end or whatever. That's when I start to really lick my chops. Yeah, I want to pile on to that a little bit because it's something I've been thinking a lot about too. Um, you know, I bet nothing actually like indicated things were going to work when it actually did. And everyone thinks they could time it. I've always uh, tried to find situations where you get these analysts putting out what I call bullerish reports. Um, and I call them bullerish because, you know, it's half bull, you know, bullshit and half like it's, it's, it's <laughs> bullish, but they call it bearish. And it's like the downgrade where it's like, we really like the long-term story. The bull case is intact, but we downgrade as we see no imminent catalyst. Um, and those are in some ways my favorite situations because like, you know, you're not supposed to see an Im imminent catalyst. If you see an imminent catalyst, it's not supposed to be like something that actually drives the stock. Um, and I think a lot of people get too fancy around those kinds of situations. So, you know, I mean, the imminent catalyst for PayPal when it actually worked in 2017 actually happened a year before. It just took a year for people to actually believe that it worked the way it was supposed to work. <laughs> so, you know, how are you supposed to do this? I, I honestly don't know. And that's something that I've struggled with myself. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I can't say enough about that because I, I hear over and over again from certain people like, oh, I just I'm waiting for the catalyst or I need the catalyst. And it's like, well, when is it obvious? When when is this catalyst going to like drop from the sky or present itself to everyone or be officially out there? I mean, it's such a tricky thing to figure out in any situation what's priced in and what isn't. And so, yeah, look, if you figured out some catalyst that nobody else has, if you've got some informational advantage, then great, go for it. But I, I hear a lot of people talking about catalysts in a way that doesn't really make sense, right? Because if it was that well known, it's already going to be in the price. The market isn't that inefficient usually. So you've either found the needle in the haystack or you're kind of waiting for Godot because the catalyst is already out there, right? I mean, I, so the example I was referring to earlier was the exact same sort of thing. There were all these catalysts kind of coming. Uh, it, it, they were spinning off a lower margin division. They were ultimately going to end up selling their international assets. Uh, there was a little bit of a CapEx spend that was going to finally pull through. But these things were all talked about and all pretty well known. And this was a $2 billion market cap. It wasn't a tiny company. Uh, you know, there was, there was decent attention on it, but it took at least two or three years before all this stuff like got digested, I guess, for lack of a better term. I mean, literally nothing changed between 2016 and 2019 with it. With, one possible exception to that to make the company re-rate by, by a factor of two, right? I mean, so I, I, I'm with you, Elliot. I think it's really tough. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, great discussion um, on both counts. And Phil, I really appreciate your personal perspective and on Lou Simpson. Um, it's always uh, difficult to see a mentor like that pass away. Um, so thank you for, for sharing uh, your thoughts there for the benefit uh, of all of us. I hope everyone listening uh, enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to having you with us again next week. Take care for now. 
Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.